taking myself off, <laughs> taking myself off my toes. I'm not on my toes anymore. No. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome again. And um, for those of you who didn't catch it or catch my name, I'm Johnny. Um, and we've been journeying together for um, I think probably the last maybe five, six weeks on a, through the Book of Acts. And I guess that's that's an obvious thing to do, isn't it, when you're starting a church? Begin with the beginning of the church. We're just very obvious, and um, it just felt like the right thing to do, because we want to pick up um, on our journey some of the essential elements that make the church the church. And that's really what we're asking, is what, what does a church on fire look like? What are the distinctives, the markers of a church that is on fire? And so we've been looking through um, quite chapter by chapter, but... Um, chunk by chunk each week and just saying, look, what is it that's special about this environment? And, and what is it that we together can begin to put into practice as we try and follow Jesus in the 21st century? That's what we're about here, isn't it? Learning what it means to follow Jesus in our day as they did in their day. And um, this has been something of a journey even so far. We've been meeting here since Easter Sunday, which is 11 or 12 weeks ago now. And that felt like a really significant shift for us. But even as I look back on our journey, uh, Amy and, and my journey of coming to Nottingham, uh, it's definitely had its ups and downs, even already. It's probably been about a year, I think, since uh, just over a year, it was probably Easter actually, that we committed to coming here and to beginning this adventure with you all. And actually, some of you know this story, but initially, Amy and I weren't part of, uh, weren't intended at least to be leading this team. We were going to be part of this, this sort of wider team that was coming up from London, but we weren't going to lead the team. And we said yes to coming as sort of the number uh, two, sort of to sit in the, the second chair, as it were. I've got chairs on the brain this morning. We said yes to doing that. It felt, like, it felt like the right thing at that time. It was really exciting that we get to be part of a really innovative and creative and you know, forward-thinking adventure, but we wouldn't have like, ultimate responsibility of it. We'd get to just sort of figure out what we were, you know, play a part, but not have to take ultimate responsibility. And then what happened was the, the couple who um, were going to be leading it, just an amazing couple, some of the best leaders we know, they just sensed that, that God just wasn't, they were really exploring it. They hadn't fully sort of nailed it down, but they just sensed that God was, wasn't really confirming that it was right for them to do. And we just still felt, no, this is so exciting. We feel called into this. So we had a conversation with the bishop uh, where the bishop said, no, we'd like you. We'd like you and Amy to, to lead this thing forward. That was a curveball for me. It was certainly a curveball for us. Lots of American images this morning. I think my biggest question, my biggest fear at that time personally was this. Am I resilient enough? Do I have what it takes? Am I, by, by resilience, I guess I mean, am I strong? Am I stable enough to manage the ups and downs of leading this? I've never led a church before. We'd never led a church before. We've been in ministry for the best part of 10 years. But that was my question. Do I have what it takes? Am I just going to be blown over by this thing? Will I be easily shaken? This idea of resilience, I think, is a critical virtue for us. It's something that we together, not just Amy and I, but wherever we are, we need to develop resilience. 
We're following, if you're a follower of Jesus or even figuring out what it would mean to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to understand that even coming to church takes some resilience these days. If you tell your friends and, and they're not followers of Jesus, they won't sort of applaud you probably for going to church. It takes some resilience in our culture today to follow Jesus. To do that in the middle of your workplace will take resilience. And it will take more and more resilience the further on you go. We need to develop resilience. And these disciples that we've met in the last few weeks have particularly been focusing on Peter and John who heal this man and then are confronted by the authorities and in the midst of confrontation seem able to stand courageously. They seem to have this one virtue, resilience, courage, boldness, call it what you will, in spades. They are not easily shaken. The question I want to ask this morning, and I hopefully uh, begin to answer from this text, is this. How might we become an unshakable people? How might we as the church become an unshakable people, a resilient people, a courageous people, a bold people? So let's just read from uh, 4 verse 23. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Okay, the first thing, as we come, you can keep that up if you like for a second. The first thing we see is on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. I think one of the keys to resilience is right in this first line, is, is, is in this, this idea of going back to their own people. Literally, in the original language, it just says they returned to their, to their own. They went back to their own. One of the keys of resilience, one of the keys to developing resilience is having a people. It's having a community. It's being part of something bigger than yourself. It's having a family. Now, the reason I was so afraid of, uh, of or questioned at least, the idea of whether or not I'd be resilient enough was because a number of years before, I'd, I'd stepped out on a similar adventure. Now, I know some of you know this story, but it was uh, the first time, really, I'd stepped out of my family. It was the first time I'd stepped out of the community of faith in which I was brought up, and it was when I went to university. And I remember driving into the town in which I went to university, and for the first time, this thought came into my head, and the thought was this, I don't know anybody here. And for some reason, I'd completely avoided even thinking that. I blocked it out. I was in denial, whatever. And as I was driving into that town, my dad was taking me, and I just thought, I don't know anybody. And what followed for me in that, in that journey, and there were a number of reasons it happened. This wasn't the only one. But what followed was actually that my faith began in that season to disintegrate. I lacked resilience. I became actually in that season, and I'm talking about a couple of years, two to three years, I became increasingly uh, anxious. I became increasingly depressed. I found life overwhelming. And one of the reasons I think that happened is because I just isolated. I become isolated from any community. I had friends, sure, acquaintances, but in terms of Christian community, I just, I just was isolated from Christian community. And actually, a lot of that was my own choice. I didn't find a group of people in which I was willing to invest. I felt like, and I would probably judged everyone else's faith. Everyone else, they're sort of to this. This happens at university, right? You know everything. <laughs> everyone, they're all a bit like that. And I'm sort of like, the, I'm sort of the radical middle. And on my own here, just like getting everything. 
you know, incredible arrogance and pride. And so I did, I just isolated myself and quite quickly my, my faith in my life, my, it's not just my spiritual life, but emotional health as well began to disintegrate. And I left university um, on my knees, spiritually, emotionally, physically, just a, a shell of the person I felt like I was. It's probably a true reflection of where I was. But I'd become isolated. And I left university, I ended up um, in London because I needed a job. <laughs> And, um, and it, because I needed a job, I was, I was taken in by, a, I was in London because I needed a job, but I was taken in by a family, in fact, some of my family, let me stay at the house, and I began to attend this church. Now, initially, the only reason I began to attend this church is because I was desperate for friends. I was desperate for connection, and all the people in my family work in the church. So that was just where I went. But I began to experience this incredible hospitality and this welcome, and it felt in that moment. In those moments, it took really, you know, six months for me to really begin to feel settled. But I felt quite quickly that I was returning to my own. There is a line in the, in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and many of you know the line. And it's the hinge point of the whole story. And the boy, or the young man, the son, the youngest son, is as far from home as you can possibly get. He's feeding from pig food in a pigsty, some distant place. And it says this, he returned to his senses. Literally, it means he returned to himself. We return to ourselves when we return to our own. The two things are connected. Once you've returned to yourself, you recognize, goodness me, I need to be with my own. And for us, as the church, it's the same as for these guys. If we want to be resilient, unshakable people, we have to have a home to return to. We have to have a family. There has to be a base, a space in which we can be who we are. The good, the bad, the ugly. That Let it all out. There has to be a home. We have to be part of a family. Our dream for this church is that this church would be a family. That this would be a place where people feel they're able to belong. Where, they're able to come, where you're able to come as you are. But you know that there's power here that you don't have to stay as you are. We want there to be this sense of welcome, hospitality, the church as family. Boldness is experienced. It's located. Resilience is located amongst people who are friends. So these guys, they return to their own, and that's where they find this resilience, this power, in order to face what the challenges they have. So firstly, I guess we would say that the secret to resilience or the key is to return to your own. But secondly, we see that initially, immediately, spontaneously almost, these guys seem to return or respond rather in prayer. This is what we read. When they heard this, that's they being their friends, their associates, these disciples, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. It's amazing. When you read this scripture, it seems like what, what um, Luke is showing us is that it's like, a, it's like an impulse reaction. It's, it's, not, it's not that the disciples just think about, hey, what should we do next? And, um, okay, let's consider the, the possible options to how do we respond to the persecution? The Sadducees are threatening here. You know, should we put together a committee? 
Um, is there something we can do about sort of relations? Could we get together some kind of mixed grouping? Could we have some Sadducees and maybe a couple of Pharisees? A couple of us, maybe the more diplomatic among us, could go on the group as well and we could invite them around for coffee and maybe they don't like coffee, you're right. Maybe tea as well and, and maybe some, I don't know, some unleavened bread. And We could think through, maybe we need a, an engagement strategy for Sadducee relations. None of it. None of that. What do they do? They're, they're under persecution. Their lives have been threatened by this group, the Sadducees. And what do they do? Immediately, instinctively, they respond in prayer. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. They go on in prayer. When they heard it, it's just a spontaneous reflex. And it says in the text here, they raised their voices. In fact, in the original language, the word voices there is just singular. Voice. They raised their voice. It's singular, it's their one voice, these people all agreeing in prayer. And yes, one person is probably praying and everyone else is listening, saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. But they're agreeing in prayer. It's this unity of prayer. If we want to become unshakable people, we have to get prayer. It begins in prayer. It's about it's a it's a spiritual thing. That's what I want to say to you this morning. That's what the Lord's saying. Even right now, He's saying it. Resilience is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. Do you know that? You need to hear that. Resilience is a spiritual thing. It's a thing the Spirit gives. It comes from the Spirit. We have to ask Him. We have to ask Him and we ask Him in prayer. When we come together and we together, do you know that when we agree on something and we ask him, he does it. That's what happens in this scripture. So we don't get what we're asking for. We're either not agreeing, we're not asking. And I just wonder whether for us, I, I've just seen our journey as a church and it's surprised, it's honestly surprised me. What surprised me is how much stuff we've done around prayer and worship. And honestly, I, I probably thought when Amy and I began our, our journey of planting this church, which really began 10 years ago when we were married, and we started comparing our journals and saying, wow, you want to do that too? I thought that was my idea. And all of the ideas we had were around like creative forms of church. And, and some of that, God willing, we'll see. But all we've actually really done has been about gathering people, praying and worshipping. And that's really interested me. And, and, and initially it sort of disappointed me. I think I thought, oh, I thought it'd be different. I thought it'd be innovative and creative and we'd blog about it. <laughs> we'd probably vlog about it. We'd certainly tweet about it. <laughs> Do you know what? We've just done the main and the plain. We've just gathered together, we've worshipped God, and we've prayed. We've not even got any groups together. We've not even got any connect groups. And some of you are like, complain, when are you going to do groups? I don't know. Don't know, don't have an answer. We don't have a strategy. I just know we're supposed to worship and pray. Because we've got to find one voice. We can organize it. Yeah, we can create all kinds of beautiful organizational structures. Groups for this, groups for that, interest groups. We've thought of it all. We've read all the books. But unless there's actually some substance, 
It doesn't matter anyway, does it? Unless, unless we've learned to worship with and pray with one voice, it's probably a waste of time. They respond. In, I want us to. Be, our dream for this church is that we'd be a praying family. My dream is that we, as Kerry said, when she was here, we'd, we'd capitalise on complaints. That I'd that we'd see wherever we are in the middle of the city. I'd just I'd be wandering around and I'd just see some of you just like praying for people in the middle of the place, because somebody had said, "Look, oh, I've got you know." You'd seen somebody that needed prayer. He prayed for I, my dream is that prayer would become like breathing for us, inhalation and exhalation. That just be a natural thing for us. That we discover new ways to pray. I don't know that many ways, but that we discover together new ways to pray, and that we'd be united in one voice as we do pray. This group of people, they respond in prayer. They return to their own. They respond in prayer becomes an instinctive thing. It happens all the way through Acts. But thirdly, this group of men and women recognize who God is. See, I've done that with three R's. Aren't I clever? They return to their own. They respond in prayer. They recognize who God is. Let's, let's read on. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord. Here's the content of their prayer. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And the prayer goes on. Verse 30, we pick it up again. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The content of this prayer is address. It's, it's the, what's most impressive for me about this prayer is not just the content, we'll get to that in a second, but the address on, on the envelope, if you like. Sovereign Lord. They begin just by saying sovereign Lord. Now the word in the original language is despota which is the word from which we get the word despot. You maybe some of you are familiar with that word. It's not a positive word. When we talk about a despot, we're talking about like a, a leader, usually a fairly aggressive authoritarian leader. But in, this, in, this, um, in, in the original language, it doesn't carry that negative tone at all. Despota is a word that, that talks about a ruler of unchallengeable power. When you talk about, when you're talking to, and that is translated as sovereign lord, What the disciples are doing in addressing this prayer to the sovereign Lord is saying the person, the one that that is more than a person, the one to whom we address this prayer is not like the people who are opposing us. The ones who are opposing us, the Sadducees, you know, they're coming against us and they have a, a certain power. They have a political power. Yeah, maybe they can throw us into prison. They can do what they did to Jesus. They could crucify us. And that's all they can do. The one to whom we're praying is the Sovereign Lord. And what can the Sovereign Lord do? Three things they pick up. The Sovereign Lord is the Creator God. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's the Creator God. He makes. He has total authority over creation. He's the Creator God. Secondly, He's the the God who reveals. He speaks. 
You spoke, verse 25, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. The sovereign God is the God who speaks. The God whose voice has more power than the voice of anybody who challenges these disciples. They recognize that. This is the sovereign God. He's the God who speaks. He's the God who creates. He's the God who speaks. And finally, he's the God who decides. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand. They thought they were acting on their own when they killed Jesus. No, your power and your will had decided. He's the one who decides. Now this vision of God, it's the vision that we see in Isaiah, isn't it? Where Isaiah gets on his face in the temple and says, you know, woe to me, I am undone. It's the biblical vision of God. A God who is a God of total authority. A God who is beyond all other names, who is above and, and beyond, who is a God who is worthy of worship. A God isn't just like a human, it's a, I think it was Karl Barth that said, you know, speaking of God is not just about, like speaking of man, but in a loud voice. You know, when we speak of God, we don't just, it's not like speaking about one another, we're just shouting. No, he's completely different. He's unquestionably above all other names. If we're going to become a resilient people, an unshakable people, there's going to be a discovery, a rediscovery of the true name and nature of God. That discovery happens in worship. You with me? That discovery happens in worship. It happens in prayer, but it happens in worship. And it's hard work sometimes because some of us come to church, many of us come to church, most of us, all of us come to church and we don't necessarily feel up to it. We don't necessarily feel up for it. Can I confess to you, I don't, I don't often feel up for it when I come here. In fact, can I say Sunday morning, Saturday night and Sunday morning are the hardest part of my week. I feel, but on Sunday morning when I wake up, I wake up early. I wake up early to pray for what's going to happen here. And I feel, even as I'm going downstairs, I feel like I'm wading through treacle. Spiritually, I feel a weight. I feel it's difficult. I go into my study and this morning, I sat there praying and I just couldn't, I couldn't even concentrate. I couldn't engage. I felt it was heavy as a weight. And, so, and to come, and, and sometimes it's, it's, it's hard work for, and it's probably hard work for you as well. Because you're busy and things are happening in your life that question and challenge your view of God and even your, your inner state, and it's hard. You don't feel like worshiping. What I want to say is it kind of works the other way around. We don't worship because we feel like it. Sometimes we feel like it as we worship. I think more often than not, it's like that. If you don't, if, if you don't know God yet, don't wait till you feel like he's real before you start praying. Pray and you might just discover he's real. It's the same with worship. You know, we discover the God who we worship when we worship him. Oh, my dream for us is that we become a worshiping community with a vision of God that's, that's just even beginning to, to scratch the infinite surface of the majesty of who he is. Pete Gregg said this recently, uh, it was just a wonderful uh, 
Christian leader and writer and, and just a great guy. He said, I'd rather have a small faith in a great God than great faith in a small God. You know, a key part of our journey is allowing God to take up his rightful place. He's the sovereign God. He's not like us. Somebody had a picture, a vision, a prophetic picture for our church. First time they ever came in the building, this is somebody from the diocese, his name Richard Kellett, before the church had been bought, purchased by the diocese for us, before any of us knew about Trinity Church Nottingham, before Amy and I did, they were wandering around this building, they were upstairs, <coughs> in the space that will be our worship space. And this guy, Richard, he said, as soon as I walked in, actually I don't know, it might have been down here, but it was one of the, the spaces that will be used for worship, he said, as soon as I walked in, I saw this enormous pearl suspended from the ceiling. And he said it was, it was like uh, an arms, a span, a span of somebody's arms, a wingspan. And it was high and it was, it was suspended from the ceiling. It was the most beautiful thing. And the, the Bible talks about the, the pearl of great price, who the person goes and sells everything they have in order to buy it. And, and Richard was prophetically seeing, I think, what, this thing that's on our church and for our church, that we are to be a place where people can come and see beauty. See Jesus in all of his beauty and all of his power and majesty suspended from the ceiling. That they'd walk in and they'd, they'd see him and they'd be willing to sell everything in order to have him. That's, that's a journey of worship. That's how that happens. It's a journey of prayer. And it's about family so this is what the community do. This is what the church does. This is what these disciples do. And it's because of these three things that they're unshakable. That's what they do. But yet there's something else in this text. Just as we close this message, there's something else. And that something else is what God does. Verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly what's God's response this is what the disciples do yes they pray they get together they recognize who God is but what is it that God does God does two things firstly he fills them after they prayed the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit what did it feel like to be filled with the Holy Spirit we don't know but it felt like something because they knew it was happening. They were able to say that something happened. Just like it had happened in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So now the Spirit of God fell on them and something changed. They were filled. They were all filled. It wasn't just for the special ones. It wasn't just for Peter and John who'd done the miracle. It was for all of them. They were filled. We, we dream that, this, that we'd experience the filling of God every time we gather here. And not just when we're not gathered here. That, that you, I dream that your kitchens would be the place where God meets you. That your workplaces, that, that like God would there'd be like thin places. Places where it's easy to get into the presence of God in the middle of your workplaces. I dream of some of you being so overwhelmed with the presence of God in the middle of your working week. That you have to just go, you maybe have to shut yourself in a cubicle somewhere. To just have a, a minute alone with Jesus. And be so full of the presence and vitality of the power of God. And we have to be, if we're going to be unshakable, we have to be filled. And only God can do that. 
We cannot fill ourselves. We've got to be filled. But secondly, if we're going to become unshakable, finally, if we're going to become unshakable, we have to be shaken by something greater. The secret to being unshakable is not actually anything. Primarily, it's not anything we do. It's something he does. I think Peter and John and the rest of the disciples were so unshakable because they had been shaken by someone so much more powerful than the Sadducees. So when they faced up to the Sadducees, they saw them for who they were. Just some playground bullies. Church, we're going to become unshakable. Let us pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that the Holy Spirit would shake the ground under us, that we might become unshakable. Let's pray that he would shake us out of whatever it is that stands in the way of him using us as he wants to use us in this city. Let's stand and do that now.